This morning we're going to be starting a new series called How to Ruin Your Life and What to Do When You Succeed. Uh, and life's sometimes get ruined. It just kind of happens. And so we're going to explore some of the ways that we do that looking through a biblical story and try and get an understanding of what we can do uh, to improve our situation so that we don't end up in those places uh, that we don't want to be, those places where we feel like our lives are ruined. Most lives don't start out ruined, though. Uh, In fact, most lives start out fairly well. Sometimes we're born into hard circumstances for sure, but uh, most lives start off well. I know for myself, my kids, like their lives, they've, they started pretty well. You know, it wasn't perfect for sure, but we've done everything we can to try and make it as good of an experience of life as possible to teach them, to guide them, and all those things. When my son was really little, so he just turned 16, but when my son was first born, when he was really little, one of the things that we loved to do was we loved to go for walks and look for construction. We were living in Toronto, and there was a lot of construction in the area we're in, so he loved to be in his stroller, and we'd go for walks, and he loved to see the, the large equipment, the, the diggers, the excavators, the things like that, and it was the most exciting thing in his little life to be able to go for a walk and see something being built. Soon after, we discovered that there was a show called Mighty Machines, which was fantastic, because we didn't have to go for a walk, but we could like sit in front of a TV and watch these big machines working, and he would be very excited about it. We even owned the DVDs of Mighty Machines because back in those days, they didn't have Netflix. It's a scary time. But we would watch them over and over again, and we would enjoy them. And one of the things that we learned, though, through watching these videos of uh, construction, of all kinds of things, there's farming equipment, all different things, what we loved more than the construction was the destruction. We love to see the implosion videos, the, the ones where the buildings were taken in on themselves, not, not necessarily built up, but taken in and destroyed. And it's an amazing thing to witness something like that. It seems to happen just so quickly, and it's just amazing to see all that goes into it. In fact, there was one, if you're from Ottawa, there was one not too long ago not too far from here, and I was able to find a video of it, and it was quite amazing. So this is a building that was imploded on Carling Avenue. Maybe you could hear the crowd cheering as it was going down. There was, in other videos that you can find on YouTube of this building, there are crowds gathered around at a distance, of course. Uh, And this was before social distancing, so they were just distancing from the explosions. And they were filming it on their phones, on cameras, all kinds of things, because they were very excited to see this implosion happen. People would line up on the streets, they would gather around, and they would be watching and waiting for it just to crumble in on themselves. We love to see an implosion sometimes. We love to see a disaster take place sometimes. It gets our attention. And what we saw in that video was all of maybe 10, 15 seconds. In 10, 15 seconds, this building, this massive building, just crumbled in on itself. And we could easily think that it happens quickly. An implosion doesn't take any time at all. But the truth is that For that implosion to happen, there was a lot of work that went into it. There were people who were for 
large amounts of time were installing explosives, and they were mapping it out. They were engineering as to where these explosions should go so that it would be able to fall in on itself. And at that time, they were trying to protect a portion of that building. So they were really thinking about how do we make this fall in on itself. An implosion might seem like it happens quickly, but it takes a long time for it to really happen. And when it does happen, there's also a big mess left over. And it takes even longer to clear up that mess. Just like these buildings, we can implode, and it seems like it's happening quickly, that our lives are ruined quickly, but it isn't quickly. In fact, ruining your life takes time. Sometimes it takes a lot of time. But we don't always realize it until that moment where everything seems to implode, that moment where that person finally gets mad back at us, maybe where we lose our job after a long time of not doing what we were supposed to be doing, maybe where our marriage seems to be ending after a long time of ignoring it altogether. Implosions, ruining our life, doesn't happen overnight. In fact, it can take years to make it happen. And if we're not paying attention, if we are choosing to ignore the problems, the clear signs, the things we do, we will be just like that building. We will crumble to rumble. And that rubble will be left over for other people or us to try and clear up. In fact, there's an individual in Scripture who has gone through steps to ruin his life over time that he didn't realize what he was doing. He didn't realize how the small decisions he was making led to a place where his life was seemingly ruined. But then he also made choices after he realized it to try and improve things. And that person is King David. Some of us who are familiar with Scripture, uh, we know the story a little bit of King David. He was someone who was called the one after God's own heart. He wrote many of the Psalms that we have in our Bibles. So this is like the prayer book of the church throughout history. Prayer book of those who are followers of of Judaism as well. There were many great things he did, but there were also some things he did not do so well. And some of us are familiar with this story. The story of David and Bathsheba. In fact, we're going to be spending time in this story for three weeks, which might seem like a lot. But hopefully, maybe if it's a new story for you, if it's one that you're not familiar with, you will become familiar. For those of us who maybe are very familiar, maybe we will re-familiarize ourselves and realize what was actually going on and what were the things happening that caused for this great moment of ruin in David's life. So if you have a Bible, please turn to it. We're going to be jumping into 2 Samuel chapter 11. The words will also be on the screen for those of us who are here or those of us who are at home, and we can follow it there. So it says this in verse 1. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Reba, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now this might seem like a strange first passage to come up for some of us. We're not 
necessarily all familiar with what the lifestyle was like, what was going on at the time, what kings were like, what it meant to be going to war, or the fact that in the spring it says they were going to war. Well, the reality was is that they didn't like the winter, kings and armies in general. Some of us still today don't like the winter. And they knew that if they were going to go and siege a place, they were going to go conquer a place, they would do it when the weather was good because then they wouldn't want to go home so quickly. So it was a general understanding in the context of the time and the place is that there were seasons for war. There were seasons for war. It made more sense to leaders at that time to go to war at certain times because they knew that the resources would be bountiful. They knew that it wouldn't be so bad. The weather would be all right. And that's what they did. And so the story starts off in chapter 11 that David, who is the king, again, he's the one who is talked about as being the one after God's own heart. He's the one who God chose, if we're familiar with the stories in 1 Samuel, God chose him to be the leader to replace Saul, who became a corrupt king. And he was meant to be the leader of the people of God. At the time of David, there was a role that the king had that wasn't just to be the political leader, but he was also the spiritual leader. There is a priestly kingdom, it would be called. And it's a theme that runs through David's life that leads ultimately to Jesus. There's the promise of God for a priestly king who ultimately is Jesus. And David was part of that, part of that lineage. He was the hope for the people at that time. And so he was meant to go to war and lead the way he's supposed to lead as a leader, as a king. But he stayed back. It says what he did was that he sent Joab with the king's men, and they went to war. But he stayed back in his palace. Joab, if you're familiar with that name, or maybe not so familiar, is he's actually David's nephew. And they have to seem what seems like a very tight bond throughout the story of Scripture. They are very close. Joab is like his right-hand man. He goes to Joab, and Joab goes to him about what's going on. He relies on him a great deal, and he becomes part of the leadership of his army. And so David, the king, who should be going to war, decides, I'm going to stay home, and I'm also going to send my most trusted partner, and they're going to take care of things. And so the text continues. It says, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So there's a few things that are happening here. One, I think we should really notice this, and it might be easy to pass over. Like, we know this woman is Bathsheba. Why do we know her name is Bathsheba? Well, a man was sent to find out who she was. But the text refers to her as the woman. 
There's very little dignity given to her in this story. Part of that, I think, is why why it's written that way is because that's how David saw her. He didn't see her as Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. He saw her as the woman over there. And he wanted the woman over there. David, who should have gone to war, who should have gone in the springtime as kings do, as the leaders do, to lead his people in war, in conquest, and we're not saying it's right, it's saying it just that's the way it was. He should have been doing that. Instead, he decides to stay back, and he seems to be bored one night. And so he's walking around in his beautiful palace. He's looking out, and he sees a woman bathing. Why is she bathing? Because she is ceremonially unclean. It's her menstrual cycle. And part of the understanding of the people in Jerusalem, the people who are followers of God, is that there was a time of uncleanness and they were supposed to bathe and to purify themselves. So she was doing that. So David, this king who was supposed to go to war, this king who is a priestly king, who is a spiritual leader, not just a political leader, is observing this woman and says, I want her, knowing that she's bathing, and the text tells us that it was because it was, she was unclean at the time. Likely he knew that as well. He would know that's why she was going to this rooftop bathing space that was separate from everything else, not to create uncleanness in the home. So David's observing this and says, I want her. David's told, well, that's somebody's wife. I still want her. And then she's pregnant. Those of us who are familiar with the story, we know how it starts to unfold, and we know what happens as David tries to find a way to get out of this predicament, that he got somebody else's wife pregnant. But it doesn't go so well. We're going to talk about that more next week. But we're going to start with what is the first thing David does, what is the first thing David did to ruin his life? And we might think, well, he slept with somebody else's wife, that's it. You know, obviously, it's adultery. That's, that's wrong. We know we should not do that. Or maybe we'll say, well, he, he just, he was kind of like a peeping Tom. He was looking at people and he shouldn't have been looking at people. That's wrong too. But that's not where it starts. That could be what looks like what is causing the implosion, but it is not the implosion. It starts that David isolates himself. David chooses to stay behind. And when I say isolate, I don't mean, you know, he's just alone. What I mean by isolate is he removes himself from the people he trusts most and the people who challenge him most. David decides to send Joab off to war. Joab is the person he trusts the most. Joab is the person who challenges David at various times in Scripture. Joab is the one who probably, if he was present, would say, hey, David, that's a bad idea. The first thing David does to ruin his life is he isolates himself from people who challenge him. How do I know that likely Joab would have confronted David? Well, because he does it at different points in Scripture. In fact, if we jump ahead either to the end of 1 Samuel or if we go into 1 Chronicles, there's a story of David taking a census. And depending on which version you read, either in Samuel or Chronicles, both cases, it's not what's supposed to be happening. 
Censuses were taken at that time to figure out who would be the right people to bring to your army to go to war. They were done to understand who you had control over. They were done to understand where you can get your prosperity. But they were especially done so that you could build an army. And we're told in the scriptures that this was not what David should have been doing. And so it comes up in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. It says that David said to Joab, the commanders of the troops, go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan, then report back to me so that I know how many there are. So he's telling Joab, who is his most trusted partner, go do my bidding. Now in the world of that time, the ancient Near East, in in worlds today where monarchies are prevalent or where uh, leadership is, is different, you do what a king says. You don't talk back to a king. You do what they say because they're the boss. That's it. So David tells Joab, go and do this, and Joab should have gone and done it. It sounds like a wonderful thing. I kind of wish that in my working environment it could be like that. Right, Andre? Just kidding. (laughs) Right? You do what the king says. That's it. You don't talk back. You have no authority compared to the king. So whatever the king says, you do. But this is what the text tells us in verse 3. It says, so But Joab replied, May the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. My Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? David is spoken back to by Joab. Joab talks back to him. He doesn't just go and do it. He says, hey, this isn't a good idea. This isn't what we should be doing. This is not right. He speaks back to David, even though he has no authority to do so. And then, unfortunately, the text tells us, well, the the king's word, however, overruled Joab. So Joab left and went throughout Israel and then came back to Jerusalem. So he did it anyway. He had no way of stopping David. He tried. He tried his best. There are other instances in the story of David and Joab where Joab speaks back to David. Likely, if he was there, while David was there, he would have said, hey, David, this is a bad idea. Yet David isolated himself from the people who would speak back to him, the people who would challenge him. Because the thing is, it is incredibly easy to only have people in your life who agree with you all the time. And that's what David did, and that's what started his implosion. He chose to remove, when he was weakest, the people who would challenge him in life. He chose that it would be easier for him to stay behind, whatever the real motivation is, we're not entirely sure. But we know that he is someone who is said to be someone after God's own heart, who's someone who saw how the previous king was a leader and who was a horrible leader. And it was like, I'm not going to be like that. And then he became like that because he isolated himself. He chose to be separate from the people who challenged him. It is so much easier to only listen to people who agree with you. It is hard to be challenged. None of us like to be challenged, if we're honest. 
None of us like people to say to us, hey, that's a bad idea. We think all of our ideas are good ideas. I know I think all of my ideas are good ideas. In reality, I know maybe 10% of my ideas are good ideas. But if I choose to only surround myself with people who say, hey, that's a great idea, Rob. Just do that, Rob. That's a great idea. I would have made many horrible mistakes in my life. Many. The easiest thing to do is to surround yourself with people who agree with you all the time. The easiest thing to do is only listen to people who have the same perspective as you. The easiest thing to do is to go on the internet and try and find a reason why you are right, because tons of people will want to tell you why. The hard thing to do is to be challenged, is to not isolate yourself with perspective, with a thought pattern, with, from people who genuinely care and challenge you. Who in your life talks back to you? Those of us with kids will probably say our kids. And that's not necessarily always the best thing, but it's true. Who's challenging you? Who's talking back to you? Who, when you say, hey, I'm going to go do this, will actually say, and because they care, not just because they're mean, because they care, say, you know what, that might not be the best decision. Who in your life is going to challenge, and who do you let challenge you? Who do you say, okay, you know, you've, you've told me a few times I have bad ideas. I'm going to stop talking to you, or I'm going to keep you around. Who do you let tell you those things? David chose to remove himself from Joab, somebody who likely would have challenged him when he did not make good decisions. David chose to isolate himself. Are you choosing to isolate yourself from people who actually care about you and don't agree with you? Or do you just reinforce your opinions and your desires with those who agree with you all the time? It's incredibly challenging in today's world, to not just surround yourself by people who agree with you. Everything seems so polarizing, whatever your opinion is on anything. And as you are polarizing yourself or feel polarized by others, you tend to search online to try and find some insight or some perspective. And the whole internet is based on algorithms that try to reinforce what you're looking for. So it is hard to step out of it. It is hard to step out of a perspective and to be challenged and to allow ourselves to be challenged because none of us like to be wrong. We all just want to be loved and told, hey, you're doing a good job. You're doing all right. But sometimes we need a Joab in our life to say, hey, this isn't a good idea. You're making a mistake. What are you doing? Over the last few weeks, I've been listening to a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Uh, Mars Hill is a church that was in Seattle, uh, started by a gentleman named Mark Driscoll, who was the pastor there. And it was a, a huge church. Uh, there was tens of thousands of people, I think. Uh, it was all over the U.S. He was incredibly influential and popular. Uh, he wrote books. He sold tons of books. Uh, but near the end, it imploded. And it imploded because of him in a lot of ways. And as you listen to the podcast, it tells stories of how over and over again, When he was challenged by somebody, like if it was in a church board meeting, if he was challenged by someone on the church board, he would remove that person from the board. If he was challenged by another staff person, he would remove that person from staff. He surrounded himself with people who just encouraged him and said, 
yep, let's do whatever you want. And it ended in disaster. People were incredibly hurt. And there are stories all over the internet of how damaged people have become. There's a lot of great things that happened there for sure, but its legacy is pain and destruction because a leader chose to isolate himself and surround himself by people who just agreed with him all the time. And it is the easiest thing for us to do, whether we feel like we're a leader or we're just a regular average person. The easiest thing to do is surround yourself by people who just say yes to everything you think is a good idea, to people who always agree with you. But it is the first step in ruining your life. If you're never challenged, if you never have people who say, hey, are you sure that's a good idea? You will eventually just implode. And it might seem like it happens instantly, like a building, but it took years to get there sometimes. I'm always conscious of this in my own life. I know that the easiest thing for me to do is just have people who agree with me all the time, which is probably why it's great that I work with Julian and Andre, because they never agree with me on anything, it seems, most of the time. But I purposefully choose to engage in community, to step out of isolation, to engage in community with people who are not like me. I have a group of people that for the past year I met once a month with. I was the only Canadian in the group, but that was okay. Uh, They were a wonderful group of people. It was part of, uh, through Arrow Leadership, which I did a few years ago. And I think there was 10 of us, and we would once a month talk and challenge each other and help each other grow. And more often than not, I was told I was doing something that probably wasn't a good idea in that group. And if I chose to either not share or to isolate myself, I probably would have never made good choices around some of those things. I have other people in my life who I go to, who I seek out as mentors to say, hey, is this a good decision? Am I making good choices? And sometimes they think, yeah, I am. And sometimes they think, no, I'm not. Because I know the easiest thing for me to do is either to ignore people altogether or just find people who agree with me. We need to be challenged. We can't just think we're always right. And we can't isolate ourselves from the people who do the challenging. What I want to encourage you to do, to encourage you to do as you are trying to figure out, well, do I isolate myself? Have I pushed my Joabs away? Have I chosen to go on my own and say that I know best and I don't listen to anyone else? What I want to encourage you to do is to find people who are safe but not soft with you. Safe in the sense that you can trust them, that you know they love you and they care for you, and not soft in the sense that they just agree with you all the time and say, hey, just go for it. Find people who you know want the best for you, who are trying to bring out the best in you. And so when they challenge you and when they're not soft with you, when they say, hey, that's a bad idea, or what are you thinking? You know it's because they love you not because they're trying to be jerks and not because they're trying to just say, hey, I just like to be contrary to everybody. Find people who are safe but not soft. I believe in a church community that's what we need to do. 
To be followers of Jesus, we need to find people who are safe but not soft. People who love us and are cheering us on and want the best for us, but don't just go along with every idea we have. Because truthfully, they're not all good ideas. Who are your safe but not soft people? Do you have any? If not, maybe you need to start finding some. Or maybe you need to ask the people you do know, who you do know care about you, some hard questions about, are you just going along with everything I say? Will you challenge me? Invite people into that. David's story doesn't end with his mistake because he makes choices to improve, to change. But there were some significant mistakes. We're going to make them too. But one way to start the process of ending our implosions, of not being consumed with what we've done and living in the mistakes that we feel we've made, is to invite people into our lives who are safe but not soft, who will challenge us, and to choose ourselves not to isolate us from anyone who disagrees with us, has a different perspective, or just doesn't go along with us sometimes. I pray that you will find people who are like that. I pray that you will invite them into your life and you will allow them to help you on this journey so that you don't end up just another person who ruins their life slowly over time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are uh, the God of David and the God of us. And that you are the God who invited David to be a reflection of you to his people, even though he messed up. And that you're the God who invites us to be a reflection of you to all of your people now, even though we mess up. And that you always give us a second chance. Holy Spirit, I pray that you help us to gain the wisdom to make decisions so that we don't take these steps that David did to ruin his life. That we choose not to isolate ourselves from people who maybe challenge us, who, who want our good, but maybe don't agree with us all the time that we specifically decide to invite people into our lives who are safe but not soft, who challenge us to think beyond what our ideas might be in the moment, to challenge us when we are obviously not making good choices, and to help us make better ones. God, life is hard. Life is challenging. Life is, is not an easy process for any of us, and we need other people on this journey. I pray for those of us who are present in this room, in this church, but also listening online, whether it's live or later on on demand, that we're looking for those people, that you bring them out to us, bring out those people in our lives who are safe but not soft. Remind us, remind us to be open with them, to invite them into our lives, to help us make wise choices so that we don't isolate ourselves and we don't make choices that lead to ruin. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are that God who gives us a second chance through Jesus. And through you, Christ, that we have an opportunity to be restored, to be made new, that our implosions are not forever because of you. That any steps we took to ruin, you invite us to take new steps into life. 
I thank you, Jesus, for that. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.